From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn, a podcast produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Thomas Phillips. This week, we're launching a new series called News Bites. It spotlights the journalism of staff and students at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. Our first guest is lecturer Joe Chandler, who's reported extensively on Australia's closest neighbour, Papua New Guinea. It's a place that's hard to report from. Many areas can only be reached by plane or boat. There's also political violence and corruption, with deadly brawls often spilling into the streets during election season. Joe's reporting often focuses on climate and health issues, as well as gender. For News Bites, she was interviewed by her colleague, Jeff Sparrow. He started by asking Joe how she first became interested in reporting on the region. I was a reporter at The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald for 20-something years. I left there in 2012, but the last few years that I was there, I managed to wrangle my way into a role as a senior writer, which meant that I had a bit of capacity to kind of pick and choose and and delve into longer form pieces. I guess one of the reasons I left in 2012 with a lot of others was that the capacity to do longer haul storytelling was really rapidly diminishing. But probably from about 2007, I had been doing more of these longer stories and I kind of developed a couple of niches One was around climate science and doing not so much the policy and the politics, but it felt like stories about how science worked. So that was one track. And then the other track that I went down was around development and aid. And so what I've increasingly found was happening, though, was that the development and aid stories were crashing into the climate stories and they were becoming kind of one and the same. But I did a couple of stories around aid and development. I did a couple of trips to Africa and came away from that process feeling a bit discombobulated and wondering really what I thought I was doing in going to places like Malawi to report on a drought emergency. I felt really poorly equipped. I remember looking at a group of women at a particular place who were clearly in very bad condition. They didn't have enough food. Most of them were HIV positive. They were a hospital where they didn't have access to any of the medicines that they needed. And I was sitting there thinking, what do I ask these women? Like, what is the point in asking? I can't ask how you feel and what yeah. do you want? So I kind of come, came away thinking, if I'm going to do this sort of thing, I have to do it in a more thoughtful, useful, designed way, I guess. And what came out of that was I remember looking at, I used to do a lot of reporting around human development indexes, and there was one that came out that showed that the maternal deaths in Papua New Guinea at that time were 733 per 100,000. I have a terrible head for numbers, but that one stuck. (laughs) And at that time, the maternal death rate in Australia was eight if you were non-Indigenous, and it was about 21 if you were Indigenous. And I thought 21 was scandalous enough, but 733 per 100,000, and it had doubled in the previous decade. And this was our closest neighbour. This is where $400 million a year of Australian aid was going. And I just had all these questions. Well, why? What is going on here? 
Why is there so little connection to these women who are our closest neighbours? We seem to be a lot more concerned with, you know, the girls that would have been kidnapped in, by Boko Haram in Nigeria than we were with what was happening with these women who were the creatures of a place that we had colonised and that we continued to extract massive amounts of resources from. And Papua New Guinea at that time, the only place he regularly found reporting on PNG was in the business pages where they would report the indexes of the rise and fall of oil search and Exxon shares and other players, but nothing else. So it's a very long story, but I was lucky enough at that time that our deputy editor was then a guy called Mark Baker, who had previously been the Papua New Guinea correspondent in the days when the age had one resident in, in, in Port Moresby. And so he had an interest in the place. And at that time, there was a massive LNG project led by all sorts and Exxon. It was supposed to be a game changer. It was going to change Papua New Guinea. There was a lot of people in Australia making a lot of money in their shareholdings out of it. And, and so I persuaded them. I, it was, this was cover for the maternal death story. I said, send me to do the story about the PNG LNG. That was seen as a legitimate story. And while I'm there, I'll do something about women dying in childbirth. <laughs> but that was actually the story I wanted to do. Um, anyway, so, so it's a long way of saying I was looking for the development stories that might be usefully told and were being neglected in our part of the world. Let's talk about this most recent trip. You were specifically in PNG in the context of an election campaign that was taking place. So for those of us who aren't familiar with PNG politics, perhaps you can give a little bit of a background of what was happening in the country, what was at stake in this election, why it was important. Okay. So that maternal death story really, I guess, connects to everything else because in the end that's about women and how they are regarded and the services that they are have access to and don't have access to. So... After that first trip, I've been back about 15 times, I guess. Um, the story of women and women's representation, I mean, you can't untangle them. There's only ever been seven women elected to the Papua New Guinea Parliament since 1977. Um, so in 10 elections, seven women total. A couple of them did a couple of terms. So, you know, six Papua New Guinean women ever and one white woman elected since 1977. The last parliament had no women at all, 111 men. The Papua New Guinea politics, I mean, it's a very vibrant democracy, but it turns on corruption. Male politicians, they are given access to some discretionary spending budgets, which are really never properly acquitted. So they use them as war chests to fund their own campaigns, buy houses in Cairns, you know. Of course, you've got some good players in there, but the lack of women in there is extremely problematic. Ten years ago, there was a big push to set up reserved seats for women, 22 reserved seats, which very came very close to getting through and then collapsed. And so we've got this problem where women lack power. And in many parts of the country, not all, they also can run into these cultural barriers where women are not seen as chiefs and leaders. And there's a, a system called the houseman system, they call it, which in lots of Papua New Guinea cultures, and I'm always careful about this because there are 800 language groups and cultures in Papua New Guinea. It's the most, most ethnically diverse place in the world. But women are locked out of power because of this sort of houseman system that says that all authority rests with these men and they exercise this authority from the house, the men's house in the village. Women aren't allowed in there. In some places they can't even look at it. And the parliament has become like the house tamaran, a house man's place. And so there's a lot of education now and a push to, to explain to communities, well, 
actually that parliament is not part of our culture it's the Westminster system and it's perfectly legitimate for women to go into that house and exercise power and it's not an affront on our Indigenous culture so you know it's fascinating stuff it's it's the lack of voices and representation of women is why there are such poor health services that women continue to die in enormous numbers in childbirth. Education is really poor. One in two Papua New Guinean children are stunted, malnourished and stunted. And none of these things are going to change until women get some voice and authority in politics. So that's what I went to look at. Okay. And so having just come back from there and conscious, as you say, that it's an incredibly diverse country, but what are some of the issues that voters were talking to you about? What was raised during the election that mattered most to the people that we spoke to? This election, I mean, Papua New Guinean elections have been pretty problematic and wild for quite a few years. I think 2002, there were, you know, hundreds of deaths, was my memory. 2007 might have been reasonably better. 2012 was pretty ugly. Usually the violence occurs in the highlands regions, but this election, it spilled into the streets of Port Moresby. There was a scene that was all over the media that occurred just down the road from where I normally stay. But if you can imagine Chadston shopping town, you know, this this Vision City is like a major, it's the biggest mall in town. It's where everyone goes to the cinema and buys their groceries. And there's these guys running around in front of it with their machetes out, banging each other. In their defense, they use the blunt side, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this was all out of frustration. The, the the voter roll, actually, it's about 15 years out of date. And then and people would turn up who had voted in the past. I had several friends who said their names had just vanished from the roll. All You've got a whole cohort of young people whose names are not on the roll at all, and it's a very young country. The election commission was just in a complete shambles heading into this election, so the roll's messy. The ballot boxes were not turning up where they were supposed to turn up. You do have problems um, where the ballot boxes are often routinely stolen en route to where they're supposed to go and they're taken to somebody's backyard and filled out by the cohort of the local big man and then they are returned (laughs) with the correct um, sort of, you know, voting done on them. So people were really feeling disenfranchised and angry. There's a woman, Dr. Aurobu Sipu, who I, who's a veteran political scientist and sort of feminist scholar in PNG, and I quote her in the piece, but she refers to how women basically, you know, they are holding together this fractured state through their own labour, through, you know, carrying the babies, carrying the water, making the place work, and they are just knackered and exhausted and angry, and so are the men. And so this hunger for the, you know, for the process to work as it's supposed to and the de- and demand for people to have their votes appropriately recorded and counted and the lack of faith that any of that will happen is really what has exploded this time. And that's where you saw scenes. There was another scene on the day that I went to one voting booth in Port Moresby. We got a message saying that, you know, the police have opened fire at the other voting booth and they were reservist untrained police local people were cross that the ballot boxes weren't being appropriately managed and they couldn't get their votes and the police opened fire with automatic weapons and they shot dead a woman a 21 year old woman who was nursing her infant the baby survived but she didn't Mm. you mentioned before um a parallel interest in climate change i'm curious to know how climate change played out in the context of a png election. I'm particularly thinking about how in the Australian context we're invariably told, I think incorrectly, that climate change is a preoccupation of a very wealthy. PNG is not a wealthy country. 
What attitude do did voters have towards climate change in this election? I don't know that it's always talked about explicitly as, you know, a policy area, but they live with the reality. And I guess I when I was there, I was, you know, even in Moresby, I went to, to visit a community where they've got their access to clean fresh water is diminished because they're on the coast and so there's saltwater inundation. The fish are vanishing, so they're doing mangrove plantings and building seawater walls and coral planting. Coral farming is now another thing that lots of communities are doing because they're trying to stabilise the shorelines. And they're also trying to rebuild some fish populations for food security because you've got a population that's growing rapidly. Many people are displaced from their original sort of, you know, village homelands because there have been extreme events or there have been shifts in the climate and the crops aren't growing as they used to or there's just no services there so they end up in settlements in the main towns. And so then they need access to gardens or or fisheries in order to eat. And both of these are being impacted by climate change. Fresh water is a big, big issue. The two women who got elected, Rufina Peter and Kessie Sawang, the two who got through, I interviewed both of them. And in both of my interviews with them, they talked about water and women carrying water and how they did it as kids their grandmothers did it and it's still going on and these girls are walking further and further because the water is scarcer and scarcer so that means of course that all of the progress that has been made over the years to give girls education and give them other you know new expectations it's all slowly being whittled away because they've got to go back to their number one job which is to provide for the family So as long as things like water and gardens are impacted, the capacity of women to look after themselves and their families and and aspire to anything beyond kind of a life of servitude, it's diminished. Everything's been kicked out from under them. I thought we should talk a little bit about the craft of journalism. With an assignment like this, are there particular skills that you found come in useful? And as a related point... Are there difficulties associated with being a white person from a colonial country reporting on a very poor country? And how do you negotiate those difficulties? Yeah, Um, I guess one of the things I'm explicitly thinking about in the stories I'm doing now and over the next semester is how to decolonise my journalism. What is that? How do I do that? You know, to report on anybody else's place, culture, community is just kind of the most mind-blowing chutzpah really you know who am I to walk into these places and presume to ask questions and think that I might be able to understand them I guess I have a lot of qualms about that with PNG I've got over them to the extent that I'm not a parachutist I'm a serial parachutist I've now been in 15 times and in any of the places that I've been I've learned to go really slowly and to go through the rights of passage and entry and explain myself as deeply and fully as I can. And that's often really problematic because most editors don't understand that you can't just scoop up the story and file within four or five hours. In most communities, I will spend, as well as having had various phone calls or whatever before I arrive, I'll then be sit down with the elders in the community for four or five hours and just explain who I am and what I think I want to do and what might be in it for them, which in all honesty is probably nothing. Mm. So I have to be really explicit about that and say, if you tell me your story, it's not going to deliver a solar system for your health centre. It's not going to bring a water project. It's not going to stop women dying in childbirth. It's, you know, it's not going to stop Exxon doing appalling things on your country. But 
I generally say to them, I can't make any promises about that, but I hope that your stories will find their way to people that have some power, either through where they put their money or how they cast their votes or how they use their own influence and that maybe that will bring change. And so I go through that whole process and usually people are pretty okay with that. They welcome the honesty, but, you know, I do walk away often thinking that I have I am myself an extractive industry (laughs) and I take their stories and I don't know quite what comes of them. On the upside, a gentleman that I spoke to this time who's an old contact and from a story I did a few years ago told me that his community is getting a road now built by the Australian government, which he's pretty sure came out of the story we did for the monthly. So I'm I'm ticking that up as a win. (laughs) I can never prove it. Let me follow that up because, as I'm sure most people here know, the uh, Australians are very ignorant about the Asia-Pacific region. The Australian media in general covers it particularly badly. How do you as a journalist cope with the kind of material pressures that are associated with the the priorities of the Australian media? As you say, that they want a quick turnaround, they're not necessarily that inclined to spend money and they're perhaps concerned that a story about PNG is not necessarily going to get lots of eyeballs or Mm. clicks or or ratings. How do you negotiate that and ensure that that you still do good journalism? Look, it's really hard and I guess within commercial media, without philanthropic money, these stories were still not being told. And the stories that have run so far ran in The Guardian using Nielsen Foundation money. And I'm basically doing it on university time. Researching and lining up these stories takes an enormous amount of time, which is just never going to be recognised at an $0.80 cents a word rate. And very few newsrooms are going to give you the time to, to go through the logistics of even lining it up. But having said that, I guess what I try and do is use my very lucky, privileged position to, I guess, try and provide some examples of how it might be done with some level of thought. There are still many things that I've done in the past as a reporter that I deeply regret and that I will endeavour to not do wrong next time. I think still think these stories matter. They still also do need to be brokered for international audiences. I'm trying to find ways where we might do that more in a collaborative, true partnership with local storytellers, and I think that's something that deserves a lot more attention, not the old fixer kind of relationship. But it's been great to see that we now get a lot more stories, particularly from the Pacific, that are being told by Pacific journalists and then broadcast out into the world through things like the Guardian's Pacific Project. But, you know, again, that's supported by philanthropic monies and there are lots of other reporters who are not getting access to that and there's still a finite amount of attention so you know what can we be doing to help collaborate with them and there is still a brokering thing I mean when you are the outsider I know what the Australian audience don't know you know whereas they're living in that reality so something like the story about the water carrying that's there every day They they don't think that's a remarkable thing to talk about whereas if I talk to a community here they're going to say oh okay and things like the nutrition and stunting we don't necessarily join the dots to say that that's come from climate shifts to agriculture and that, you know, we, we might think about drowning islands as a narrative, and but we don't think about things like vector-borne diseases or about how you know, lack of access to clean water or crops is going to continue this issue of stunting and malnutrition, which means you have a whole population that are not equipped to make the most of their lives and their opportunities. 
That was CAG Senior Lecturer Jo Chandler talking about her work on Papua New Guinea. The Yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to Joe Chandler and Jeff Sparrow. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. See you next week. <laughs>